or sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In other words, you got all this really good stuff going on for you in having the scriptures. But, he says, verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one mustn't commit adultery, don't you commit adultery? And you who abhor idols, don't you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, he quotes Ezekiel, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's pow and ask God to help us. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we're all a bit sluggish this morning. We all lost an hour last night. That affects some of us more than others. Lord, you know every single person that is here has come to worship you and to give their hearts to you. And we thank you that you are our merciful Father. You love your children, and you know who we are as students, every single one of us, what our individual strengths and weaknesses are as those who devote themselves to your word. And so knowing us, Lord, and knowing our tendency to drift away from paying close attention to what you say, especially when we are tired. We pray for extra grace this morning. God, we know you love us and you desire to speak to us. So help us, Lord, to pay all the more closer attention to the matters of salvation that you have given to us in this passage. Above all, Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would open our minds to know that the law can never save us. Do this, we pray, according to your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. The word security is a word that we all understand, especially with recent events happening in Europe, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We all want security. It's, it, this word security, it really hits us where we live. Everybody wants it. We seek that comfortable sense of freedom that comes when we are confident there is no threat of danger, that there is no trouble, that tomorrow will be just like today, and today was relatively safe, and we look forward to many safe days ahead. That's the idea of security. It's not merely the absence of threat. It's not merely the absence of risk of danger. It is a confidence in peace. We all want security. We look for it in various ways. People talk about economic security or job security, as the case may be. And uh, when we say that, what we're really saying is we want to make sure that we have the means of employment available to us so that we can provide for ourselves. We also talk about even home security. We're worried about crime in our neighborhoods. And so to a certain extent, we'll put up security surveillance cameras and we'll put bars on our windows. All of these ideas of security, we want to be able to know that within our sanctuary, we can be at ease. The same is true with eternal security. All of us are aware of the fact that we've sinned. All of us have a guilty conscience. All of us struggle with the reality that we have harmed others. And so all of mankind attempts to alleviate that conscience by searching for security in all manner of things. And what Paul is going to do in our text this morning with regards to the Jews is he is going to strip away their false sense of security, hoping in the law, Mosaic law, the law given 
to Moses. And this isn't mean of him to do this. If anyone is hoping in something that is utterly false, that can provide no real sense of security, it is loving for us to remove those false illusions of safety that they are holding on to. We begin here in verse 17. Paul is very specific. Up until this point, he has talked about Jews in a rather restrained kind of way. He's talked about them generally, but here he points out exactly who he's talking to. Now, for those of you who are joining us for the first time today, I'll just remind you that the gospel is for everyone. It is for the Jew first and also the Gentile. And as we've been walking all the way through chapter 2, Paul has hammered home the reality that everyone, Jew or Gentile, all people all across the world, throughout all of time, everyone in the universe knows the truth about God. Now, in his love for his audience, and by extension, the Holy Spirit's love for all of us, this Spirit-inspired text moves from general humanity to those who would consider themselves particularly religious, even those individuals who had received the Word of God. So this is particularly important for us today. As Baptists, we pride ourselves on being a people of the book. And all First Baptist Church said, now here's the danger. Here's the danger. Having the book, which we all pride ourselves in having, which we all thank the good Lord for giving to us, having the book is no sure security. Understand that as we work our way through the text this morning. He focuses in specifically on the Jews. Beginning in verse 17, he starts with a series of, in the Greek, we call these conditional clauses. It's a third class kind of thing. If, uh, if John Marlowe's here, he's probably excited to hear me say this. The third class conditional clause in Greek is a rhetorical question that assumes a positive yes. It assumes, yes, this is true. So even though the ESV is going to translate it, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve it is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law an embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? That's assuming a correct yes affirmative answer. Paul is assuming that the answer to all of these statements, these declarations that he makes about the Jews, are going to end in an affirmative yes. You know all these things to be true, so therefore, you who teach others, don't you teach yourself? You teach yourself, don't you? Right? Yes, of course. That's what Paul is saying. And so it begins in verse 17. And there are in this verse eight, you may have missed it, but there are eight bold declarations, accurate statements made about Jews. And we hear these statements, we need to understand these could just as equally apply to us as Baptists, as people, quote-unquote, of the book. He begins in verse 17. First, he says, you call yourself a Jew. And just as easily, we could apply this to ourselves and say, okay, we call ourselves Christian. We claim to be followers of Christ. He calls them Jews. He says, you call yourself a Jew. And of course, they did. To be a member of the Jewish race was to enjoy certain religious advantages over other nations. Gradually, however, privilege, the privilege gave birth to a form of self-righteousness. The privilege of being a Jew lent itself to an air of arrogance. Paul understood the sentiments of those to whom he wrote, which included Jews, obviously, because prior to conversion, 
prior to becoming a Christian, he himself was a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so he understands exactly what he is saying to them, because prior to his conversion, he himself was among those who were, as he writes in Galatians chapter 1, the most zealous of individuals, most zealous for his heritage. That's the first statement he, say, he makes. You call yourself a Jew. Second statement he makes. You rely on the law. And the word here is very interesting. It means to rest upon. Understood another way, he could be saying, you call yourself a Jew and you place your hope, you place your faith, you rest yourself upon the law. That's what he's saying there. And so after all, he is alluding to the fact that God has revealed himself to Israel through Moses as the great lawgiver. He has laid out his expectations for the nation, what it is that he wants them to do. And as a result, their national identity, who it is that they think of themselves as being, is inextricably bound up with the fact that they've been given the law. Just like you and I here today as Baptists, we pride ourselves among all other denominations as individuals, undoubtedly, who are proud of the fact that we have the Bible, we're people of the book. Let the parallels sink in here. That's the second thing he says. Third, they boast in this. They're proud of it. They boast of their unique relationship to God. He was theirs, they thought, and incorrectly concluded he was theirs alone. He belonged only to the Jews. This was their incorrect assumption. And so they bragged upon it. No other nation had been so blessed. God was indeed the father of Israel. And so another advantage for the Jews was that their knowledge of God extended to an awareness, an understanding, a knowledge of his will, what it is that he desired. So God had clearly revealed to the nation what it was that he expected of them. And because they were, quote-unquote, instructed by the law, as Paul says, they were able to distinguish that which was morally superior. They knew what God wanted them to do. They knew it was morally correct. And therefore, they prided themselves on the fact that they could do what was excellent. Fifth, he says... Uh, they, uh, fifth, he says, you approve of what is superior. Both here and in Philippians chapter 1, this expression could mean either you test things which are different from each other, or having done so, you approve of those things which the test has shown to be excellent. Okay? Sixth, the reason for your moral discernment is that, and he reiterates this again in verse 18, you are instructed by the law. And of course, a further consequence of being instructed from the law and having this discernment is that seventh, you are convinced that you are competent to teach others. And all of this because eighth, the eighth declaration he makes about them, you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They were so convinced of their mastery of knowing the moral superiority and excellence of God's will that they prided themselves not only in the fact that they had it, that they knew it, but that they rightfully should and ought to be the teachers of all the rest of the world, Paul says. Now, it's at this moment that we need to step back and ask ourselves the question, do we understand the law like they understood the law? Do we grasp the importance and the significance of the Old Testament Mosaic law as they understood it? Do we understand why it is so important to do what is right and to absolutely resist and refrain from doing what is wrong to the extent that they did? How many of us here have driver's licenses? Raise your hand. Let me see it. Okay. Now, put your hand... No, no. Keep them up. Keep them up. 
Now put your hand down if you have broken the speed limit at some point in time or another. So Dustin's hand is still, oh, no, no, okay, okay. See, I'm going to call you out now. If you, if you mess with me, I'm just going to put you on the spot. So let's be truthful here. We have the law. We know what we ought to do. We understand the reasons for it to keep people safe, so forth and so on. We might disagree with the rationing, the, the, the rationale, the reasoning of our leaders, but we know what the law is, and yet we all break it. And here's where it gets really interesting. We all break it just enough. We all seem to know instinctively where that boundary is, where we can break it, and the cops won't necessarily pull us over and give us a ticket. Raise your hand here if you do not know the accepted, agreed-upon limitation of breaking the speed limit. See, we all know it. We all know it, which is why I'm not going to say it, because I don't want to implicate myself in any of you that might be ignorant. <laughs> don't know what, just follow the speed limit. This is what the law is telling us. When we look at Old Testament law, the term that has been used to describe it is from Latin, it's the talion, not talon, as though an eagle's claw. There's only one letter of difference, but it's crucial, talion. It, and we probably, you're probably more familiar with it under its full name, the lex talionis. This is a principle of law that was first introduced in the Bible, later developed in early Babylonian law, present in both later Jewish and Roman culture. And the idea of the talion is that criminals should receive as punishment precisely and exactly what they deserved for the harm that they caused. The idea in the Italian is that you should get exactly what you deserve for the exact amount of harm that you caused, no more and, and certainly no less. This is the idea in the Italianus. And we find it famously encapsulated in that passage from Exodus 21 verses 22 to 25. I'm sure you've all heard of it before. You shall repay an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm sure you've all heard it. And undoubtedly, you've heard the rejoinder that we give in our 21st century context. Yes, yes, of course. An eye for an eye, but then the whole world goes blind. We've said that in order to dismiss the demands of the Italian. In order to say, yes, we understand that justice requires an exacting demand of repayment, but of course, who among us is innocent, and how could we ever possibly repay? So we'll just dismiss the whole thing and set it aside. That's how you and I view it, especially as we are Christians, understanding the law from the view of Christ and the gospel. But I want you to set that all aside for a second, and I want us to really understand the law as Paul is speaking about it here, and as it would have been embraced by the Jews. You see, when they would cite the law to each other, they wouldn't dare say, an eye for an eye, and the whole world goes blind, so let's just dismiss it. No, that is not not a part of their vernacular. That is not a sort of a pithy sort of platitude that they would have repeated to each other. Not at all. No. In context, they would have taken this particular statement very seriously. I would suggest it's something we need to reconsider for our present day and age, given the implications that it has for the pro-choice crowd and abortion. You may not be aware of this, but this whole idea of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is rooted in the Mosaic law in a passage dealing with a pre, uh, 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 an immature, oh, now in my, in my notes, 
a, a, a miscarriage, that's the word I'm looking for, a miscarriage that was brought about as a result of violence. Okay, so in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 and 25, just listen. It says, when men strive together, in other words, they're fighting, and they hit a pregnant woman, ladies there, kind of a a bystander, and they're fighting, and they're rolling around and wrestling and punching each other. Inadvertently, they strike the woman who is pregnant. It says, when men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. In other words, they were fighting. A pregnant woman was injured. She gave birth premature, but the child survived delivery and was successfully delivered, and there was no harm. You're still liable for causing harm, even though the child survived. You're going to pay a fine. But, verse 23, if there is harm, in other words, the child does not survive, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. All of this given to us for the sake of protecting the life of the preborn. This theory of justice then, is not abstract the way we abstract it today. We try to reduce everything down in our modern judicial system in terms of financial compensation. Even to the extent that you killed a man, well, how much is he worth financially? What can we pay in order to make restitution in terms of dollars? Okay, but that's not the Italian. Italian says it's going to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, measure for measure. In its biblical formulation, Italian puts the body, lives, eyes, teeth, front and center as the measure of human value. The body has always been provided to us by God as an instrument by which we can measure. Feet, to measure, of course, this is before the arrival of the metric system, but We've been given feet to measure length. We've been given fathoms, which is the outstretched arms from fingertip to fingertip. This is a fathom. We've been given fathoms to measure depth in terms of ships out on the ocean. We've been given hands to measure the height of a horse from the ground, from the ground up to his shoulder. How many hands is it? We've been taught to measure that way. Elves, I saw this and I didn't know what an L was. My wife knew. Those of you who sew or work in fabric, an L is the measurement from your elbow to your fingertip and is commonly used to measure out fabric for sewing. Or pinches of salt, for example. We even use a body part to measure off how much of a particular ingredient goes into a recipe. It's not terribly precise, granted, but nevertheless, we tended to have used over the centuries our own body as a unit of measurement. And if you've ever wondered why that was or where that comes from, it comes from the talionis, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. The talion insists on exactitude for what it means to do, if we're going to consider it in its proper context, is to measure value and the value that it is attempting to measure is the value of us. Thus, it would price John's life as being roughly equal to that of Harry's, 
Or, if Harry is a loser and his life isn't quite worth living, it might measure John's worth as the sum of Harry's and Pete's lives together. But you and I can quibble over this and we can argue, but here's the crux of what the Italian is saying. The Italian is saying that the value of who I am, the value of different parts of me, including my eye, is only capable of being understood in terms of the value of your life and your eye. In other words, we live in a day and age in which everything is relative. We celebrate moral relativism. You have your truth and you have your truth. But the law of Moses, the law of God, the Italian says, in terms of justice and how you evaluate harm done to you, you are incapable of measuring that harm. You must measure that harm by the harm of someone else. You have to consider what is done to you in light of how someone else might consider it. In other words, the Italian, this eye for an eye, this tooth for a tooth principle that God gives us, it forces us out of any absurd or preposterous notion that somehow we might value ourselves in isolation from the rest of us in community. We have to understand the value of an individual as he's a part of a whole society, and we have to do it collaboratively and together. No room for the postmodern concept of relativism. No room for the postmodern concept of individualized truth here. No, the Italian is ruthless in bringing us to the table and talking and coming to a singular consensus on what is harm and what is not harm and what certain types of harm are worth and what other types of harm are worth. Church, that's crucial. The Italian states that my eye is to be understood in the terms of the value of your eye, that my teeth And the harm that is caused to me when I have a tooth knocked out of my mouth is to be understood in terms of the value of your teeth. How much is it worth to you not to have to mess with dentures? Now, that's something very tangible, is it not? It kind of breaks it from this abstract theory of financial compensation, and it brings it to a very real level. When talking to kindergartners or grade one students, They push each other, and they shove, and they bite, and they kick, and they're violent creatures, really. Really, they are, trying to get their own way. And when you say to them, you shouldn't do that, how would you like to have that done to you? Again, they wouldn't necessarily like it, but they're not necessarily convicted. But I tell you this, we'd never do this, never. But I tell you this, if they pushed another student such that there was a cut on the other student's face, and Miss Illich or Miss Stanley were to say oh, I'm so sorry that this happened, little Johnny, and they go to their desk drawer and they fetch a knife and they come back. (laughs) Well, this is no longer abstract theory. This is suddenly very real. Do you see the beauty of Italian? Do you see what God has given to his people to help them to understand? When we think of justice, we have it in our minds, this idea of lady justice, being this individual who has a, a blindfold around her eyes, and she's got a sword in one hand, which is there to symbolize, obviously, the need for swift retribution, the exacting of payment. And in her other hand, if you'll recall, she holds a pair of scales, okay? Balances, a balance. And when we think of that, if, if you recall statues of Lady Justice, probably you'll recall that those Those scales are tipped. And the idea of justice, then, is that what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring those scales back to balance, back to even. 
okay, back to square. That's the idea of Lady Justice. That's the idea of what the concept of justice is really about, making things equal and even between us. Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Macedonia, Rome, all of the ancient empires of the world held dear this concept of justice as about setting things to parity and equality between people. Of course, they all perverted it and distorted it in various ways, namely the invention of classes and society, different groups of people within society, and what you might owe as a lower class isn't the same as what an older, uh, uh, higher class individual might owe. Nevertheless, they all had this concept that when it came to justice, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get back to zero. We're trying to get back to even. And metaphors for settling accounts in which evenness is all run deep even through our language. If the scales are still tipped, we, are, we find that we are still at odds with one another. In all of this, though, there are two questions when it comes to justice. There are two questions that need answering. Number one, who is responsible for the harm that has been done? And therefore, who is it that must pay for the damage? That's number one. Who is it that has to pay? Who is it that is responsible? And number two, how much is owed in order to make the harmed individual whole? See, in in, in, when injustice has been done, the idea is that the victim has lost something which must be restored to them. And so these two questions are pivotal. Who pays? Who is it that owes? And what is it that is owed? How much is owed in order to make the victim whole? Exodus, we have numerous instances of this all throughout the Old Testament, that this is indeed what the Mosaic Law is after. For example, in Exodus chapter 21, again, it says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. It shall be thrown out. But the owner of the ox shall not be financially liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to goring in the past, and its owner has been warned, but he has not kept it in, that is, he hasn't fenced that ox, and it goes out and kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. In other words, he's liable for what his ox has done because he knew it was going to be violent. And it says in verse 30, if a ransom is imposed upon him, a ransom meaning a financial transaction, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed upon him. And so even as it mentions the taking of life in order to balance the scales, there is this opportunity that you can satisfy the demands of justice within the talion, not necessarily by giving eye for an eye or giving tooth for a tooth, but perhaps there is a way in which you can make it right through, financial, through a financial transaction. This has always happened throughout all of the different cultures we look at. Payment in order to make restitution has always been an option but here's the kicker. It has always existed alongside of revenge, the actual taking, the actual shedding of blood. So the idea here, though, is that we're trying to get back to peace. This idea of pay, paying what is owed, it comes from the Latin word pecare, which means to pacify or to appease, which is then reduced to this English word we get today, which means peace. With this word pay, the sense of pacify was applied specifically to the, the, the idea that 
you were trying to pacify or satisfy a creditor. There's someone we owe money to or we owe a debt to. And so we're going to pay what we owe. That is, we're going to pacify them or we're going to make peace with them. Pacify, pay, peace. All have the same root in Latin. And so even our financial terms for payment and financial transactions aren't actually rooted in economics. They're rooted in our theory of justice and jurisprudence. And I think that's quite remarkable. Peace, then, if we're going to understand it correctly, according to the Italian, is about settling accounts. It's about settling accounts, paying back what you owe so that you can have peace. Peace, then, that does not involve evening up the score, evening up the scales, is not peace that is worthy of the name. Peace, in other words, that is bought by the forgiveness of debts, forgiveness where you just allow the other person to walk away and you absorb the cost, that kind of peace has to be carefully inspected and scrutinized in order to verify that it is not actually motivated by cowardice, a reluctance to force the other party to come to the table and pay what is owed. Now, again, we see multiple examples of this in the Scriptures. I don't have time to get into it all today, but what we really need to think about is when it comes to justice, if we're talking about a damage that is done, then it should be relatively straightforward to pay it back in terms of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But one of the things we see within the talionis is that justice takes into account this concept that is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. Justice takes into account the concept of honor. Honor. You dishonored the individual when you harmed him because he never deserved to have suffered that indignity in the first place. You stole something from him which is not easily measured in terms of eyes or teeth or hands. How does one measure honor and how does one restore honor to that person? You see, if I drive my truck into your fence and I damage your fence, I can pay an amount of money, a very measurable quantity of money in order to restore the fence to you. And so you might be thinking at this point in time that if I pay this money back, the scales have been balanced, I've paid what I've owed, you have had your property restored to you, but the talionis takes something further into account, namely the fact that you never deserve to have your fence damaged in the first place, and that in damaging your fence for a period of time, I took something from you, you were deprived of something which was rightfully yours, and for a period of time, I took it from you, even though I have now restored it to you, you still suffered its loss for a period of time. Every year around Remembrance Day, in which we have all of these Remembrance Day celebrations that happen all over the country, we sometimes hear accounts, and we heard an account just as recently as a year ago, of an individual attending a Remembrance Day parade, wearing medals, portraying themselves as a veteran who was not actually a veteran. And of course, the cry comes out from veterans all over the country This is a case of stolen honor or stolen valor. And what it does is it it doesn't necessarily take anything away from other veterans in terms of an actual ribbon and medal. 
They have their medals. This guy put on some fake medals. He hasn't actually stolen anything tangible in terms of an actual medal from these veterans. But nevertheless, we understand he has stolen something that is very intangible. He has taken honor from them. And in doing so, he has cheapened and lessened the dignity to which they are owed because of their sacrifice. This is an action that took place in past time. They went in past time and they were courageous and they faced uncertain odds on a battlefield. They faced death, the prospect of death, in order to give something for their fellow man. And they are noted and they are distinguished and marked by a medal showing that they have done these things. And when you just throw a medal on your chest, having not done those things, you cheapen and lessen the honor that is owed to them. And so the question is, how do you pay that back? And of course, in our society, I mean, really nothing happens other than we shame him and ask him to take the medal off his chest, which most of the time they comply and they remove the medals. Okay, all well and good. Nothing is actually given back. There is no real restitution that is made to the veteran that actually earned those medals. Honor has been stolen. Honor cannot necessarily be given back. And the talionis takes all of this into account. Simply ceasing the action that causes harm does not make up for the time where the offender undertook the action. It just sets the scales close to even, but it doesn't actually even them out. Which is why financial compensation was never fully sufficient. That's why sometimes, on some occasions, they actually demanded blood. Because if I can take your eye, or if I can knock a tooth out of your mouth, then you, regardless of however much money is in your bank account, you will be afraid of me. You will fear the consequences of your actions. And that, that fear is worth something far beyond the reach of money or any other form of financial compensation. That is truly worth something beyond the realm of money. It makes compensation because it forces one to be afraid, and fear has to do with the reverence and the the direction of a person's heart somewhere deep in his soul that is beyond financial compensation. By holding out the possibility that you could take his eye or take his tooth, you held him in a place of fear where when he stole honor from you, he took something intangible that he can never get back, but by threatening actually taking blood as payment, you now force the heart into a disposition where it must promise properly restore the honor that is owed to the individual from whom it was taken. This is the significance of the Mosaic law. They were ruthless in exacting payment. They were ruthless in exacting vengeance. And they forced everyone to the table to an understanding of what fair compensation really looked like. Now, is that the correct use of the law? Paul makes a real stinging indictment here. He says in Romans, if you're still in Romans, just listen to this. He says, you call yourself a Jew. You say you walk with God. Okay, yes, yes, I do. And you, notice this, verse 17, rely on the law. Again, the Greek word there is you place your hope, you place your faith, 
you depend upon what you see in the law, right? Yeah, God spoke the law to me. God told me that we're all equal because we're all equally children of God, created in the image of God, and I had better not dare do anything to harm this other person because if I do anything, no matter how small it might be, there is a real accounting. It might come down to me having to pluck out an eye or knock out a tooth in order to square accounts with this guy. So yeah, I am afraid of harming that other person. I am afraid of what it will cost me. I will then walk in a manner that is circumspect and reverential, and I'm going to do everything I can not to harm the guy that is next to me, right? That's what Paul is saying. You Jews, this is what you subscribe to. You think God has favored you because he has given you this law, right? And because you've been instructed in this law, you know his will, you approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law. But he says, if then you are a teacher and you know the truth, you then who teach others, going to verse 21, don't you teach yourself? How is it possible that any of us really think we're keeping the law. How is it possible that any of us, if we're looking in the mirror at the end of the day, could really conclude that we've never harmed another person, and if we have harmed them, we have been faithful and careful to pay back what is owed in terms of eyeballs and teeth in order to make sure that the scales are fully balanced. Who among us here has broken the speed limit and then voluntarily gone down to the RCMP detachment, acknowledged the breach of the law, given the date and the time, the circumstances of that breach of the law, and then paid voluntarily the fine that attached to that breaking of the crime, that, that crime, that breaking of the law. None of us have done that. None of us. When we break the law, do you know what our response is? Whew, nobody saw me. But didn't someone see you? Notice Paul now transitions. He says, you pride yourself in the law. Our 21st century American westernized, Canadian westernized uh, ears, we hear law and we think in terms of Canadian law and Canadian jurisprudence. We think in terms of financial compensation and there's always a deal to be made. That's not what the Jews understood the law to be. And if we're really going to grasp the thrust of what Paul is saying, he's saying, no, you understand the cold, hard, relentless, unremitting, absolute exactitude with which God views all of humanity, that you're all created in his image, that you all are entitled to a certain degree of dignity, and don't you dare violate or cross that dignity. You know that, do you? You know what attaches in terms of consequences, do you? Do you? Do you actually? He says, you who pride yourself on receiving the law and teaching others because you're so convinced of what you know to be true, talking about all this stuff, how is it you don't understand? How is it you're not also teaching yourself? He goes on. This is actually a rhetorical function here. This is a, a very refined oratorical uh, 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 maneuver, we might call it a maneuver, from the first century. It's called multiple repetition question. And it is actually something that is understood from Cicero, and it's something that we'll probably teach our students at some point in time. When you are in a debate with an individual who is likely to argue and disagree, what you do is you then ask a series of questions intended to overwhelm your opponent. This was done to great effect by my grandmother whenever I would visit her at her home and I would repeatedly ask for cookies from the cookie jar. And I'm sure if you 
Well, stop to think about it. You've had this happen in your life as well, where you've gone to talk to someone and they have overwhelmed you with a series of questions that you just have, didn't have time to respond to. I remember it well. My grandmother asking me point blank. Um, she would pose the question as I would come for a, a cookie. She would say, who are you? What do you want? Why are you here? Of course you're not here for cookies, are you, since you already have eaten them all? Don't you need to be moving on? Of course you agree that you need to be moving on. Yes, you do. Go ahead. Get out of my face. I mean, I'm still thinking about that first question, and then she's already whipping me with the next one, and then I'm like, oh, you know, and I'm starting to think about the, and before I've even really started the process, she's on to a different question, and she whips all the way through a series of questions, and then she lands on a conclusion. Before I can really digest what, he, what has even been said, you know what I'm saying is right. Go away. No cookies for you. You know this has happened to you as well. Look here. You then who teach others, don't you teach yourself? Now, that's the framing question. And he's going to ask a series of questions which really are not the thrust of what he's getting at. I have read dozens and dozens of commentaries where they just boil it down. They just zero in. What does he mean by asking that question? Do you steal? Could it be that some of the Jews that he's talking to stole? What does he mean by asking about adultery? Could it be that some of the Jews he's writing to in in the city of Rome, could it be that maybe some of them were engaged in adultery? Idols, stealing from idols, what, what is that? Again, we're, we're getting lost in the crux of it all, but if we would just understand there is a unifying principle to every single one of these questions, and that's really what Paul is getting at. He says, you who understand the law, the talionis, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, you who understand that, don't you get what it teaches you? All of these questions have to do with taking something from someone else to which you are not entitled. He goes on, he hammers it home. He says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? The point here isn't that there are Jews living in Rome who are part of the church in Rome, or maybe not even a part of the church in Rome, but who are, who are hearing this and are thinking to themselves, yes, I'm a, I'm a thief, I steal. That's not the point of what he's getting at. That's just the framing question. He says, don't you understand the law? You who preach against stealing, don't you steal? You who say that one doesn't commit adultery, don't you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law of God, dishonor God, by breaking the law. That is the concluding statement that he's getting at. All the way through, he's not looking to get into specifics of theft or adultery. The point is, they claim to be a people of purity. They claim to be a people of moral excellence, but they have misunderstood the law because they're all guilty of breaking the law if they would simply be honest with themselves. And so he uses a series of questions which don't really have anything in common with each other other than this one point. All of us, all of us have taken what was not ours and we have not paid it back. And if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, we cannot pay it back. Our lives, however we have lived them, have at some point in time been inconsistent. We have borne the name of Christ just as they bore the name of Jew. And our behavior at some point in time or another has always resulted in people observing us and saying to themselves after having watched us, and this guy calls himself a Christian? So Paul concludes his indictment with this statement, quoting from Ezekiel. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You have, what, what is blasphemy? It's where we slander God, where we say things about God that are not true. And as a result of their behavior, 
guess what has been stolen? Honor that is due to God's name has been stolen from God because of their behavior. Not the specifics necessarily, but in general, all of them have acted in a way that now God has been dishonored. You're proud of this law that teaches a ruthless system of repayment whenever something has been taken. What is owed to God when you have stolen from his honor? How does a little finite creature such as yourself pay back God? But also the question we have to wrestle with then is, for the length of time in which you took honor, which you are now striving, though inadequately, to repay, what will you give for that length of time that you dishonored and stole from the Lord? You who rely on the law, how do you not get it? How do you not see? The law will not save any of us. The law will only show us just how hopeless we really are. It is good to know the will of the Lord. There are matters of righteousness that are revealed clearly in the law. Don't misunderstand me. The Ten Commandments are going to hold true from now until eternity. God is to be honored and worshipped. We're not to lie. We're not to cheat or steal. We're not to dishonor our mother and our father and so forth and so on. These things will hold true because the character of God is glorious and His name will always, always deserve to be exalted. But when we really wrestle with what the law asks of us, we come to the inescapable conclusion, we have something we need to pay back, and we can't pay it. Something funny about the law, though, something else we find there. Within the law, there was this idea, if you couldn't pay back what you owe, someone who was a close relative to you could pay it for you. In other words, if you couldn't pay back, someone else could buy you back. It's known as the kinsman redeemer. It's the law of the kinsman redeemer. Speaking specifically in Leviticus, God says through Moses in the law, if a stranger or a sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or the sojourner with you or to a member of that stranger's clan, And after he is sold, he may be redeemed. That is, he may be paid for. He may be bought back. And God says, one of his brothers is allowed to redeem him. Again, in that same chapter of Leviticus, it says, if though he is not redeemed, then he and his children with him, the guy that's in slavery, that sold himself into slavery, he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. In Israel, they had a calendar that required every seven years for there to be a sabbatical year in which no work was done. And this would happen over a series of sevens. Every seventh year was a year off. And of course, seven periods, seven cycles of this, you come up to year 49. Year 49 would also be a sabbatical year. But then that year 50 would be known as the year of Jubilee. And God promised he would provide for his people in the 46th year of harvest so they would have enough crops to take them all the way through the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, every debt is forgiven 
Every prisoner is let go. Everyone goes free. Their debts are relinquished. Now, it isn't a matter of simply just letting go of people that owe you money. Yeah, you'd let them go. But the year of Jubilee was an exercise in faith. There was this understanding in it that somehow, some way, even though this person owed you money on the year of Jubilee, you'd let them go, believing that God would make you whole. We know this from what Moses says in the book of Exodus. As the nation of Israel is leaving Egypt, Moses sings a song. Moses' song in Exodus chapter 15. They've crossed the Red Sea. They are home free. And Moses sings, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. That is, you bought them back. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. In the law, there was always this idea that justice would ultimately be satisfied by God. And there was this hint that he would pay what was owed by the kinsman redeemer. We can't pay what we owe. Praise God, he sends a brother for us to buy us back. In case you're not sure who I'm referring to, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Perfectly righteous, perfectly innocent, dying on the cross, paying what we owe. If we are convicted by the law, understand that we have hope in what Jesus does to buy us back. And let us hope in that. Church, would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. God, we rejoice to know that we owe more than we could ever possibly hope to repay. Thank you for that. Thank you for convicting us of that. Thank you for showing that to us. Thank you for removing from us this false security that we're actually capable of satisfying the demands of the law. We're never capable of it. And of course, that was by divine plan. Lord, help us not to hope in the law, but allow the law to drive us to the one who can pay what we owe and can buy us back. Lord, drive us through the law to your son, Jesus. May he be worshiped. May he be exalted. May he be praised. In hoping in him, Lord, our prayer is that you would help us as your people not to take the honor from him that is due to his name. God, we love you. We worship you. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.